Just come and pray. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the security of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for the fact that everything that we have in life comes from you. That you bought us at that incredible price of Jesus given for us. Your love for us is amazing. It is overwhelming. Lord, help us truly to be amazed by that love and to respond to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over recent weeks, we've been looking at at giving. We've looked at the Old Testament and what it, it has to teach us about both the theory and the practice of giving. We've also looked in the New Testament at Jesus and giving. Now, over the next two sermons, we're going to finish this series off by looking finally at Paul and giving. Looking particularly at Paul's principles that underline his attitude toward giving. The principles that were the foundation, the motivation that guided and directed all Paul's teaching and practice, not just with regard to giving, but in just about every area of ministry. Now, as we do this, I'm sure that you won't be too surprised to find that there's something of an overlap between what we find here in Paul and what we've also looked at previously. Now that is uh, not too surprising, because as we know, although this various teaching came through different channels, came at different points in history, yet the inspiration behind it all was the one same true God. But I want to say, don't be put off with this, for there are going to be new things, I believe, coming through tonight as well. New things that we can discover from Paul about what God's will is for his people in relation to giving. But before we we move on to look at at Paul's principles, as I've said, mold just his attitude towards Christian living in the whole and not just his approach to giving. But before we go into look at that, let me first just say a little bit about the background here to 2 Corinthians, just to try and set this teaching in context because we'll never truly accurately understand what Paul's teaching here is unless I think we understand the background that it emerges from. So first, just a little bit about the general context of 2 Corinthians. And this starts off really way back at the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-9, where there Paul had talked of a visit in Corinth in particular to gather in their offering for the needy church in Jerusalem. However, it seems that, that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he found to his dismay that what he later spoke of as false apostles, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, that they were already in position. And what these men were doing was contradicting certain aspects of Paul's teaching and bringing into question his character and motives. Basically then seeking in every way to humiliate him and to undermine him. So Paul left Corinth broken hearted. That the church there had failed to support him wholeheartedly. And almost immediately he wrote a strong letter of rebuke. Now that letter hasn't, I'm afraid, survived. Perhaps providentially. But the evidence of the contents of that letter we find scattered right throughout what we call Paul's second letter 
to the Corinthians. For example, in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. It would seem, though, that this, this letter caused Paul a great deal of anxiety. Anxiety about whether he'd been too harsh, anxiety also about whether to the contrary he'd said enough to move the Corinthians to repentance. And so at least part of, of 2 Corinthians is Paul's response to the good news brought to him by Titus that his letter, that letter that's now lost, that this letter has done the trick. That the Corinthians have been moved to repentance. Now, it's in the general context of this kind of situation of upheaval and unrest that we have to see 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And as for the particular context with regard to giving, well, again, it would appear from 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4, that the Corinthians, that they'd heard that Paul was taking up a collection for the suffering Jerusalem church. And that before he could even contact them, they themselves had taken the initiative of asking him what they could do. 2 Corinthians 8.10 anyway would surely suggest that, that kind of conclusion. He says, last year you were not only the first to give, but also to have the desire to do so. However, although they'd started off so well... Yet perhaps because of this dispute with Paul, because of the instability of their situation, or maybe because they were an immature church, maybe attracted to the big gesture, the glitter and grammar, but lacking a bit in substance and depth, in maturity and stickability, because of this, this collection wasn't something that they'd seen fully through. So in verse 17, Paul says, now finish the task so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. So you see, what Paul then is seeking to do here is to set out principles and then to stimulate to faithful, consistent giving an immature church who've gone so far in their giving but not far enough. Now, I hope you've, you've got that because this kind of understanding of the background, I believe, will help you to understand so much more clearly just what Paul's actually saying here and just what its application is to us. But that's enough of the background. Let's just move on to look at Paul's principles of giving as we find them here in these chapters. And the first principle of giving that I believe we should take note of is the fact that all true giving has its roots in God's giving. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So, through, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Now we're going to talk about issues uh, related to this. Both today we'll do that and also the next time we'll look at these chapters but suffice it just to say for now that all giving that is both generous and truly acceptable in God's sight 
is that which is given in response to that love of God which in Christ loved us, sought us out, and sacrificed itself for us. And if our giving doesn't have its roots there, if it's not rooted in that love of God, then it will either be niggardly, it will be mean, or it will be a work of the flesh. It will be something, a work that we do to maybe prove how good we are, to make ourselves acceptable to God and look good to our peers. But you see, as Paul so aptly reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3, he says, If I give all I possess to the poor, but have not love, I gain nothing. So if our giving then isn't rooted in God's love, if our giving is not a response to the love of God, then no matter how much we give or how little we give, it's all equally worthless. As Michael Bourne, once the rector of the famous All Souls in Langham Place in London, later the Bishop of Chester, as he said, it is not until a congregation is deeply in love with Jesus that they will give sacrificially and gladly. That's the first principle then of giving. The all true giving has its roots in God's giving. The second principle building on this is that our giving is then often stimulated by the giving of others. You see, once we've got our roots right, our roots are in the Lord and in his love, well then hearing on the human level of the giving of others can then be a stimulus and a great encouragement. Now, of course, take away that route, and then hearing of the giving of others can be anything but. It can then simply foster those already too prevalent human qualities of jealousy and pride, and it can even bring to the surface a kind of unhealthy, sinful competitiveness. Well, you know what I'm saying. However, there's evidence, I believe, in Second Corinthians that that Paul knew how, that he knew how, when the roots were right, how to handle this kind of situation creatively in the right way. For if you look in, in chapter 8, verse 2, right into the Corinthians of the generosity of the Macedonians, he says there that out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. But then you see... In chapter 9, verse 2, we read there of how earlier this giving of the Macedonians was stimulated by him telling them of the eagerness of the Corinthians to give. For you see, there he says, For I know of your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. You see, he uses each of them to be an inspiration to one another. And you know, it's true, isn't it, that hearing and seeing what God's doing in other people in various ways, but certainly I think in regard to giving, it's true that this can encourage us to step out in faith that we might receive 
just the same kind of joy and blessing. I read a wonderful story some years ago now that I think illustrates beautifully what I'm trying to say here. It's the story of an American Christian businessman who was traveling in Korea not too long after the Korean War, and he was traveling around the the local area with a friend who was serving as a missionary in, in that particular area. And one day, he saw in the field by the side of the road near to where his friend lived, he saw a young man pulling a rough plow while an older man held the handles of the plow and guided it along. Now, this businessman was kind of amused by this. It was so unusual, and he got his camera out and and took a picture. He said, you know, that's a curious scene. I suppose these people are very poor. Yes, said his missionary friend quietly. But these two men also happen to be Christians. When their church was being built, they were eager to give something toward it. But they had no money. So they decided to sell their one and only ox, and they gave the proceeds to the church. So this spring, they're pulling the plow themselves. The businessman was silent for a moment, and then he said, that must have been a real sacrifice. They didn't call it that, said the missionary. They thought that it was fortunate that they had an ox to sell. And needless to say, that businessman didn't have any more comments to make. However, when he reached home, he took the pictures that he'd taken of this to his pastor. And he told him the story. He told him all about it. And then he added, I want to double my giving to the church and do some plow work. Up till now, I've never given God anything that involved real sacrifice. Well, the third principle of giving that I believe we find here in 2 Corinthians is the fact that there are two levels of giving. For Paul says in in chapter 8, verse 3, that the Macedonians, that they gave firstly as much as they were able, and then also that they gave beyond their ability. Now, I believe this is really a New Testament illustration of the continuing relevance of something that we've already seen and established in the Old Testament. And that the Israelites in the Old Testament, that they there were expected to give proportionally as much as they were able. That is a tithe. That was their custom, one-tenth of their income. This being seen not so much as something that was given to God, but rather something that belonged to God. Something that was to be holy and untouched and consecrated to the Lord as an expression of the fact that, that God was Lord and King over their lives. And second, oh, sorry, Leviticus 27.30 really summing up the Old Testament teaching where it says there, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. And Michael Bourne, who I mentioned earlier, commented again on this. He says that if we accept this tithing principle, It has very important practical repercussions. It means that God has first claim on our income and not the remnants of what we can afford when we've spent what we want on ourselves. The practical step of putting the cash aside each week or month means that you start by thinking of living on the other nine-tenths. 
The money for the Lord and for needs in the world is set aside and regular giving is possible and thought through. However, the Israelites didn't only give a tithe. They didn't only give proportionally. That is as much as they were able. No, they also gave, again like the Macedonians here, they gave above and beyond their tithe. They gave beyond their ability. Because Deuteronomy 12.11 tells us that the, the Israelites, as well as our tithe, that they also brought gifts and offerings to God. And you see, what these gifts and offerings, what they were, was their way of saying thank you to God for the great ways he'd worked in their lives in the past. And it was also an opportunity to express gratitude to God for any special blessing that they were enjoying in the present, in the here and now. Deuteronomy 16, 16 and 17 says, No man should appear empty-handed before the Lord. Each of you should bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. So you see then, in both the Old Testament and in the New, we see signs of the same kind of two-tier system of giving. The tithe, the proportionate, committed, systematic, and then the thank offering, that way of saying thank you to God at certain times in life for special blessing we're enjoying. And I'm not going to labor on this point because I know I've touched on it before, but personally I do see the tithe as being that part of the offering that we should bring into the storehouse, that is, into the church. Whereas the offerings that we make, I believe, can be as God leads at our discretion. I know that this is a teaching that some find difficult for all sorts of reasons, and some of those reasons I know very, very good reasons because of you know, real claims that, that we feel in our hearts to support certain ministries. And I know it's difficult. But I still say this because I see it as being the biblical emphasis. You know, Deuteronomy 12, 17. You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your grain and new wine and oil of the firstborn of your herds and flocks. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place the Lord your God shall choose. And, and I have to say, I have to add that I see this as having at least two very important benefits to it. First of all, it enables us to do so much more if we really work together, give together, and combine our resources. And secondly, it saves us from becoming a victim of one of the big failings, I believe, of our modern society. And that is the cult of individualism, the cult of self, and more biblically accurately, the sin of self. So you see, turning from this, instead of, I'll do what I want with my money, it becomes instead, together, we will find the will of the Lord for his money, his resources. I've got to say just a little here that there have been some sections of the wider church in recent years where they have tried to adopt this kind of two-tier system of giving. The problem for me being, in my view, that they've been too authoritarian regarding the tithe. 
Because this has been something that has been required rather than requested to the extent in some places that tithing is seen as something that you're actually compelled to do in order to remain in fellowship. I have to say I don't see that in any way as right. I don't see it as being either biblically or spiritually justified. Rather to the contrary, I see that as being an example of the very kind of legalistic approach that Jesus came to do away with. Remember the last time, some of you will, that we looked at Jesus teaching on giving. Remember Matthew 5, 17, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in verse 20 of the same chapter, Jesus then going on to add the very challenging words, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you see, tithing, the law of tithing, has been fulfilled, not abolished in Jesus, in the very sense that we are no longer to give, we're no longer supposed to give, because we feel that we should, because we feel that we must, because somebody demands it of us, because of some kind of legalistic requirement. Now, rather, in Christ, God's people are supposed to give because they want to give. Going back to what we said earlier, God's people in Christ, we give in response to that love of God in him, in Christ, that gave everything for us. We give because we want to respond and we want to show him that we love him in return. And it's then, having got things right at this level of motivation, it's then that I believe tithing is useful. But not though as a law, not as something that can be demanded, but rather as a guide. And what it does is it shows us something of the level that we should be given at in order that in this area we might please the God that we love. And remember, remember here, what we're told in Matthew 5.20, that the Jews who didn't know Jesus, the Jews who hadn't experienced the grace and forgiveness of God In Jesus Christ, they gave a tithe. So the question is, can we then, who have experienced his love and grace, who know we're forgiven, who know the cost of that forgiveness, can we give any less? You know, I've got to be honest, I don't believe we can. If the love of Jesus is really at work and alive within us in the way it should be. But that brings us on pretty naturally to, fourth, to Paul's fourth important principle to giving, and that is that it is our attitude to giving that's all important. It's attitude that matters, motive that matters. Second Corinthians eight twelve it says, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Now again, we've touched on this before, so I'm not going to labour the point. But I think it is important, having said a bit about the tithe, just to say just a little bit more about attitude. For you see, it is possible for someone to give a tithe and to give more than a tithe, go far beyond the tithe, and yet for this not to be pleasing to God. It's possible if it's not given 
out of love for God and out of love for his people. And you see, we do this as we give in a legalistic fashion, as we give because it's the done thing, or as we give even as an alternative to really getting involved in the often messy business of, of ministry to needy people. We can give as a conscious self. We can give to avoid doing the work of ministry. And that does not please God. It is then possible for apparently generous giving to be just plain unacceptable to God. And alternatively, there are some who are not perhaps giving a tithe, but who's giving because we're giving all that we can is just like that of the widow's might is most certainly acceptable to God. Here I'm not talking primarily about, you know, old age pensioners or students or people of low income and whatever reason, whatever. No, because there are many people I've found in my life and ministry in just that place who are among the most generous of God's people. We would be in big bother without those people. We've got many people in that situation who like those Macedonians who've got as their starting point not how little can I get away with but rather how much can I give. We're blessed with many people like that in the church. I remember well a conversation I had a number of years ago with somebody who was involved then with Baptist Union leadership and he told me of a visit in relation to Baptist Union he'd made to a church, a church with our only 30 in membership and out of that 30 only 5 of them were wage earners, and yet those 30 people were managing to maintain their building, to maintain their ministries, and to fully support a pastor. That that, that proves it again, that people of limited means and income can be generous to God, and they are again and again. But what I'm talking in the main about here, as I suggest that there can be people who are not given a tithe, but whose giving is a blessing to God, is truly acceptable to God. The kind of thing I'm talking about is, say, a marriage situation where only one partner is a Christian and where for that other partner, for that Christian, to give sacrificially would seem like a betrayal of trust to their partner and only serve to alienate them further from God. You see, when that is someone's situation, and they then give as they can, I believe that they can be sure that God understands and that God is blessed abundantly by what they give. Well, Paul's final principle of giving that I see here is to do with the fact of God's lordship. For again, speaking of the Macedonians, he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. And you see how important this final principle really is. For we will only ever be able to properly give of our money and our resources and of our gifts and of our time. Once we have first truly given of ourselves to the Lord. And what I mean by that is, as the Lord is the absolute unchallenged sovereign of our lives.
You see, it's no use talking about loving God if that love stays at the level of sentimental and largely empty talk. No love has got to be joined and rooted to lordship. Because it's adherence to lordship, it's that that then puts steel into our love. And it's that kind of balance in life, a love and a lordship of Jesus that leads us on into mature relationship with God. The kind of relationship that then works its way out, not just in talking about love, but in deeds of love that include giving. At a truly biblical level. It's perhaps here at this point, though, that we maybe touch on that which is the real problem for some of us, of which our reluctance to give is, is just a symptom. That is, that our relationship with God isn't that kind of relationship of depth. You know, we're maybe ready to talk a lot about the love of God. But the way that we live shows that despite all the talk, he really isn't truly Lord of our lives. And you see, it's that fundamental, it's that essential, it's that non-negotiable spiritual principle that we've got to get right and get sorted out. Because it's then that the rest of our spiritual life, including our giving, it's then that it all falls into place. So you see, it all boils down really at the end. Not to looking at our bank books and not to looking at the offering bag. But what it all boils down to is looking instead into our hearts. That's where it all begins. So may God help each one of us to do that. That each one of us might live in that true, right relationship with him. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you for just the challenge of your word. And well, sometimes it's a difficult thing to face up to the challenge of your word. Lord, you de- seem to demand so much sometimes. But Lord, when we feel that, it's because we're coming from the wrong place. Because when we are filled with love for Jesus when we recognize what you've done for us, when we know that you're the Lord of our lives, then living this Christian life becomes a natural response to you. We want to serve you. We want to go wherever you call us to. We want to do whatever you ask us to do. We want to give whatever you're asking us to give. And Lord, it's, it's a natural thing because we love you so much. So Father, we pray. Fill our hearts tonight with an abundant, overflowing love for Jesus. This we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.